everyone. Thank you for coming out today. My name is Ananda Menon. I'm a second year graduate student in the Department of Biology. And I am going to talk about sperm biology and global change. I probably spent more time coming up with the title than the rest of the talk, so I apologize <laughs> in advance, yeah? All right, so what I want to do before we get started, just so everyone knows, I'm a bit of a fake scientist. Matt scares me, drafts scare me. So there's just mostly going to be animal pictures. If we think about life and the way life works, yeah? Living things change over time, and the way that happens adaptively is the process of selection, right? So very briefly, life is about feeding, fighting, escaping predators, and also, of course, mating and reproduction. And obviously, the individuals who have the most offspring are the most successful, right? And they leave behind more genetic copies to the next generation. Now, previously, most people have thought that the sort of mating aspect of it is something that happens sort of pre-mating, right? So if you think of a peacock or you think of an elephant seal or something like that, you have these like really extravagant displays. But recently, within the last, within the last sort of 20 years or so, biologists have recognized more and more that part of the contest actually starts after the mating is done, right? So once you're done mating, you have something going on called post-copulatory sexual selection. And basically what that means is there's sort of interactions that go on between individuals after mating has happened. So for example, if a female mates with multiple males, the sperm within her reproductive tract have to compete for fertilization. Or females might be able to influence which sperm cells end up fertilizing which eggs, right? So if she mates with multiple males, she might be able to sort of influence who fathers most of the young. When we think about sort of sperm and semen, one of the misconceptions that a lot of people don't understand is that sperm and semen are very, very different things, all right? So very, very quickly, sperm is a kind of cell. It has half the genetic material of a normal cell, so it's a male sex cell. Whereas semen is a pretty complex fluid. It has proteins and sugars and all sorts of things in it. And sperm and semen have some really important functional differences. So in the fruit fly, for example, the seminal fluid, right, so the non-sperm part of the semen actually has proteins in it that change a female's behavior. So if a female is exposed to those proteins, she actually does not mate for a certain amount of time. So it's like mind, con mind control through sperm. And those same proteins are actually also found in humans, though no one has done any experiments. I'm just going to stick to sperm because that's what I research. So very briefly, sperm is actually a really diverse set of um, tissues and cells across the animal kingdom. A lot of people sort of see that little tadpole shape and that's what they think about. But realistically, there's a lot of diversity. So the smallest sper sperm cells and the largest ones are actually about 8,500 yeah. times apart in their size. And just as a reference, I study birds. The smallest and the largest birds, there's only about a 60x difference, right? So it's orders of magnitude. Sperm also has a bunch of forms. So here we have an example of sperm and a fruit fly. I'll come back to that. Down there, the thing that looks like an alien is sperm from a crab. Worms have sperm that are like amoebas. And they can actually grab hold of things and kind of climb over other cells. And the last one is actually a fossil sperm. It's about 50 million years old. And looking at the traits of the sperm, people were able to actually figure out what class of annelids or segmented worms it came from. So sperm is very sort of characteristic of a particular animal group. Right. Now, in biology, one of the biggest myths that we have is that you have very few, very large eggs, and eggs are really expensive. 
And sperm is dirt cheap, right? You can produce as much sperm as you want. And most people have heard the sort of analogy where one man ejaculating once could fertilize every woman in Europe. Frankly, that is just not true, right? So people think that sperm is cheap, but it is not. And there have been a lot of studies of natural history that show that this isn't the case. So that nice, pretty looking fish there is a Picasso trigger fish. And in this species, the male guards territories and <coughs> has a little like harem of females. Um, and generally, about 40% of the eggs that the females lay are never fertilized because the male physically cannot produce enough sperm to fertilize all those eggs. In the adder, so the European adder, they actually spend more energy making sperm than hunting because of the amount of energy it takes to produce that sperm. I mean, sperm takes energy to produce. There's a lot of micronutrients that are actually involved in proper sperm production. And you also have to be really careful when you're making sperm because you don't want to end up with a bunch of errors, right? Because if your sperm is defective, the offspring are not gonna survive. Um, and the last two, so in Drosophila, so you saw that large sperm cell. The sperm count in that species is about 400, which is a really low number. And the last one, which is a little leafhopper, in his whole life, he only makes enough sperm to mate four times. After that, he just physically can't do it. <laughs> but the thing is here, so, so the idea is that sperm is difficult to make, right? There is an actual cost to producing sperm. You need to deploy it strategically. All right, now I am mostly scared of grass, so this is probably going to be the only one here. So that nice fish up there, well, let's start with the fruit flies. So in fruit flies, males actually deploy their sperm really strategically. If you look at sort of just the sperm count, and the way to do this is to actually remove the reproductive tract of the female and physically count the sperm cells. Male fruit flies actually give mated females a lot more sperm, right? Because she already has another male sperm in her tract. So to compensate for that, you would put more sperm in there to compete. Larger females produce more eggs, so again, males put more sperm in there. And they also invest more in younger females versus older ones because, again, younger females are likely to live longer. And the other thing that's interesting, in a variety of species, and I've just, this is one of the best examples, is the bitterling fish. If a male sees a new female, he pr gives her a lot more sperm than if he sees one that he's around, right? So he thinks, oh, well, uh, you know, she's been around a lot. You know, she's not going anywhere else. I don't need to put that much effort in. And fun fact, this is actually, this is actually the same thing in humans. And the study was done in my undergrad school where they actually made, they had to ask a bunch of young gentlemen to control their um, self-pleasuring behavior. Um, and it was done in a monitored environment and they had to watch the same actress multiple times and then a new one. And every time there was a new actress, their sperm count shot up. Um, which is actually really important, right? If you think about when you go to a fertility clinic, you're not gonna be doing it to a picture of your wife, right? So, you know, we, we really need to understand the dynamics and behavior of sperm, right? To understand even, say, human public health. Now, the other thing that um, a lot of people haven't been aware of until quite recently is that sperm actually has fairly complex behavior for a bunch of cells. So um, the first thing um, that we can talk about is sperm can actually cooperate. And this is something that botanists have known for a really long time. Um, in fact, in most plants, there's two kinds of sperm cell that come together. One makes a tube that goes through the flower that helps the other one actually fertilize the egg. But we've discovered that this actually happens in animals as well. So I'm not sure how clear this picture is. This is the little sperm train from a wood mouse, um, which is a cute little animal up there. So they have these little hooks. 
And what this sperm chain does is it actually blocks the female's reproductive tract. So it's sort of, it's, it's so large that the, other, the sperm from other males can't get through. And because it's so large, it can actually swim through the tract faster. What's kind of crazy about this is that if you made a female with two brothers and then a stranger, the brother's sperm will cooperate with each other. So they will actually form a train together, right? <laughs> Excluding the sperm from the other male, right? So, uh, you know, it's an interesting strategy. The other thing that, that's really neat is that many species actually make, remember I said that a lot of species have a lot of detective sperm. It turns out that not all sperm is for fertilization. So in snails, for instance, um, all of these different cell types are different types of snail sperm. And it turns out people used to think this was defective. Um, some of these actually function mostly to attack other sperm. So if the female mates with multiple males, they sort of just attack the other sperm and clump onto it, preventing it from moving. This hypothesis has been put forward in humans as well. It's called the kamikaze sperm hypothesis. It's really difficult to look at sperm within a female reproductive tract in humans, so we actually know very, very little about it. But the potential is always there. And then finally, just thinking a little bit more about sperm biology, the end game is always fertilization, right? Uh, when we think about evolution again, you normally think about like a gazelle running and being chased by a lion and the evolution of speed and so on and so forth. But it's one of the biggest sort of bottlenecks in terms of survival. If you think of, so the, the species I study is the zebra finch, and I'll talk about them a bit more. But each ejaculate has about 8 billion sperm cells, and only about 15 of them actually manage to reach the eggs, right? Which, which is a ridiculous mortality rate. You're not going to see that anywhere else. But not only is it hard and incredibly sort of difficult to reach the, the eggs, eggs themselves are actually fairly hostile structures, right? Again, this is not conscious hostileness, but um, so each egg is covered in a layer of proteins called um, sort of the zona, uh, zona pellucida. This layer is so thick that no individual sperm cell can break through it. So you hear a lot of myths about things like the, the fastest sperm, right? You were the fastest sperm, there's absolutely no way. The first few sperm that go through actually die while trying to break through that barrier, so you were the sneaky, lazy sperm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? And, and it doesn't pay to work too hard, guys. It just does not. <laughs> All right? So a lot, you know, the more we study these things, I think the more we're learning about sperm, but there, there is a real lack of um, sort of well-done science on this topic. And a lot of that is because a lot of the techniques have just been developed in the last couple of decades. Um, so I did promise to talk a little bit about danger and sperm, not just fun facts. So um, there's been a lot of news quite recently about how sperm counts have been dropping in the developed world to the point where actually now uh, we have sperm counts that are only about 50% what they were in the 1960s. Um, and we say developed world because we don't have the data from the developing world. If we look in many species of uh, wildlife as well, especially amphibians, this is really well studied. Environmental pollutants actually interfere with sex determination in these species. So rather than developing ovaries or testes, they develop a structure called an ovotestis, which sort of makes gametes that are midway through and they're just not functional. And finally, um, in birds, which again is a group that I study, their sort of testes are, uh, they don't have testes, as, well they have testes, sorry, but their sperm is stored in two little sacks. Um, right on the outside called the cloaca. 
and this is exposed to the outside air. And in fact, if the summer is too hot, it can actually kill all the sperm that the bird has made. And this has happened in finch species in Australia. It's been fairly well documented. So I study sperm and songbirds, and I just wanted to show you guys a little video of these wigglers moving. I'm hoping this will work. So I think, I think songbird sperm is just really beautiful. It's a lot nicer looking than human sperm. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how well this photo is showing up. Well, it's easier to see in this. But you see it has a really nice sort of cylindrical head. And that's because that helps it move through the female's reproductive tract. But what's interesting is that in the songbird, you see sperm of a lot of different kinds, right? So you have sperm that have really large heads. You have sperm with really short tails or long tails. And I study various different aspects of sperm behavior. And the reason I study this is because um, there is a lot of evidence that the structure of sperm really influences its ability to affect fertilization, right? And I study how environmental pollution affects sperm structure. So I wanted to give you guys a very quick overview of the type of research that I do. Um, and the first question that I ask is, does mercury affect sperm quality in songbirds, right? The way I study this is we actually dose these animals through their diet. Um, we went out in the field, we caught a bunch of insects, looked at how much mercury there was in their diets, and we, we sort of replicate that in the lab. We feed them a, an artificial diet with the same mercury concentration. Um, then you grow up these animals, right? So you get the cute little babies to be adults. Um, and then I try, and then I have to collect sperm from them. Now there's sort of two ways I do this. One is, um, you can collect it manually. So like I said, they store their sperm in two little sacks near the cloaca. So if you squeeze well enough, you can get a sperm sample. And the second thing I do is I use a dummy female. Now, if this, if this doesn't turn you on, that's because you're not a male zebra fish, you're a female. Um, but but um, they get quite excited when they see these. I've been making these models of females, which Essentially what I do is I freeze dry a female and then sort of pose her in mating position. And then what I have been doing actually is I cut out her cloaca and I replace it with a little sort of piece of aquarium tubing. And then the, the males can't tell, so it's all good. Um, yeah, so the reason I do this in these two ways, right, is we've talked about sperm being costly. So what a male makes might not be what he actually transfers to the female. And most studies have actually only used the artificial collection method, which might not be representative of what happens in nature. So it's one thing to look at it one way, but we really should try as far as possible to replicate natural conditions. Now the thing is, even if you do all of this, all of this is going to give you sort of a measure of what the male is making. It doesn't tell you anything really about what the sperm is doing. And birds are a really neat system to study sperm in because A, they don't have much seminal fluid as a as sort of a flight adaptation measure. But B, what's really neat about birds is because they lay eggs, what happens is once the sperm sort of travel up, um, they cover the yolk. So there's a membrane around the yolk that the sperm sort of travel around, and then the female puts the egg white around it. So essentially, all the sperm that manage to travel up get trapped in that membrane. So whenever you open an egg and you dissect out that membrane, you can see the sperm that manage to reach the egg. This is not something you could do in a mouse or any other animal with internal fertilization without actually killing the female. So it gives us a really good measure. So this is a picture of sort of a sperm cell on an egg membrane. 
And the neat thing about it also is that when the sperm actually managed to penetrate the membrane and, and reach the egg, they leave a little hole behind. So you can actually get a measure of what, not only what the male makes, but what ends up going up there. And I haven't done a huge amount of analysis on this, but it looks like these are two completely separate populations of sperm. So if you look at the average traits of sperm cells that actually manage to make it up there, they're a little bit longer in general, um, and they have shorter tails, um, which, uh, which you know is an interesting uh, difference, right? So why do males make sperm with shorter tails then? Um, then the other thing I want to do is I also want to see if this has an actual effect on the females themselves, because males do produce certain chemicals and things that help females lay their eggs sort of sooner. So I'm also looking at sort of the latency to the first clutch of eggs. I haven't done that part of the study yet. Um, we don't have a huge amount of analysis, but so far it does look like males exposed to mercury produce fewer sperm, and sperm that are not quite as good at doing their jobs. Right. Um, so I'm afraid I'm still kind of at the beginning of my research, so I don't have a huge number of graphs to show you guys, but I just wanted to give you guys like an overview of sperm biology and what's going on. So I'd just like to thank my advisor, John Swaddle. <laughs> <laughs> this is an actual quote. Um, and Dan Crystal, Laura Hurley, who taught me how to sperm birds, Carly, who's helped me a lot with sort of setting things up, my lab in general, and funding from the Bird Club and Arts and Sciences grants. So thank you very much.